Um, the first thing I'm going to do is what I've been doing every time I've been in front of a camera for the last couple of weeks. I'm going to recommend my friend's new book. <laughs> Joseph Selby, also known within Ananda's Purushottama. He's the co-author of the book on the Yugas with David Steinmetz, whom I would also recommend the Yugas highly. He's just published a new book. It's called The Physics of God, and it's that reconciliation of spirit and science that is such an interesting topic these days. He's an extremely um, brilliant writer, and he also just can take very complicated subjects and figure out the parts that matter and then weave it together in a way that um, really everybody can understand and appreciate the significance. I think the uh, convergence of spiritual, spiritual, spiritual perception and scientific discovery is a really important part of our, our present rise in consciousness and rise in civilization. And this book is a, a real contributor to the subject. It's not long. It's just 200 pages. It's extremely readable. I am not adept at this subject. And I actually was really interested and able to understand, for which I am very grateful. But don't think, therefore, it's a simplistic book. It's just very well written. It's called The Physics of God. It's not published by Ananda Publications, so you have to go online, or if you live near an East-West bookstore, you can go buy it in person. Okay, that's my, that's my statement. Now, conversations with Yogananda. I need to start by correcting a little bit something I said last week. You know, sometimes in the heat of the moment, words come out of your mouth, and then later you wonder whether you really, that was really correct. And I made a reference, which I will still stand behind, but I just want to modify it, talking about channeled information and receiving messages from, through mediums from people on the other side. And there's a lot of that that I think people are, well, one is my, one, as my friend once said, sometimes people are a little too easily impressed merely because it's a little bit out of, merely because something is outside the normal doesn't mean it's superior to the normal. And I commented that the difficulty in uh, a great deal of channeled information is that you have the information, but you don't know the consciousness behind it because you can't examine the individual who is the source. You might know the medium, but you don't really know if they say they're just bringing somebody from the other side. So I said rather jovially that they're just dead people. They're not really necessarily wiser. They're just not in bodies right now. But I wanted to modify that with a few very specific examples which prove that many things are possible. I, for example, John the Divine, who is a healer who works out of Brazil, he basically acts as the channel in this world for an entire consortium of doctors who are in the astral world and with specific names and uh, he knows who they are and he's, he's definitely doing something way beyond the ordinary and is himself a very saintly person and is really a medium between the worlds. Um, Edgar Casey, it was never clear exactly what Edgar Casey was doing, whether he was really entering his own superconsciousness or whether he was a channel. Um, and others that I, uh, another woman whose name, whose contemporary, I don't actually even know her name, but she also is a healer who works with a specific doctor who lives on a higher realm and then guides her through. So I wanted to give space for all of that too um, because it's not good to be cynical. Um, especially in the early years, in the 70s and the 80s when 
all of this was just becoming in. There was a lot of stuff that happened that was not real terrific. There was one woman actually, the kind of channeling that's really the most concerning is where one person actually vacates their consciousness and someone else comes in. Um, There was one woman who was very well known for many years and she channeled some specific entity. But I remember seeing an interview and it became extremely popular during this was probably in the 70s, maybe into the 80s. She and her husband became very wealthy and hundreds of people followed. But I saw an interview with her once that was absolutely heartbreaking because when that entity enters her, she goes unconscious. So she actually said she's missed a great deal of her own life because so much of the time when everything is happening and everybody else is having experiences, her consciousness has been suppressed. She goes unconscious, someone uses her body, then she comes back. And as Swami put it, you already have an extremely complicated um, matrix of all of your past incarnations in your subconscious. And when another entity comes in, and all of those impressions are also laid on top of yours because such a person comes in with their own consciousness, he, he just says the results are not positive. So these are, the, I just needed to say it because I just was way off our topic, but it was, uh, I wasn't careful enough. Okay. I'll come back to that if we get, if we get far enough. I'm not sure if we'll get far enough to really make the point, but I have another point that's related, basically about the power of the source, but we'll get there later. I think we might not get there to another class. Source. I'm, I need to speak up. <clears throat> Number 264. Sir, I asked him, excuse me, are there any questions or comments on any of that? Or I just drop that on you and everybody's just content. <laughs> okay. Number 264. Sir, I asked him, is it all right to kill flies, mosquitoes, and other such pests? These are very important questions because the thought of not doing it is a really grim, really grim. It is always better to kill harmful creatures, he replied, than to allow human life to be endangered. He had taught that if one's choice lies between the life of a human being and that of a less evolved animal, karmic law dictates that the human life is the more important. I carried the point further. One can't really say that those insects are necessarily a danger to human life. Flies, for instance, are more of a nuisance than a threat. Even so, he replied, in countries where such insects are allowed to thrive, the mortality rate is higher owing to the diseases they carry and because of the filth they spread. In countries where they are kept under control, there is less filth and disease, and people on an average live much longer. It is best, therefore, to keep those pests under control, especially in populated areas. Besides, he added, such insects are instruments of evil. As such, their proliferation should be discouraged. Wowie zowie. You know, there are several things that are fun in there. What I love about this teaching, one is that it's so commonsensical and you don't find yourself in some sort of tortured, um, rule-bound reality where you can't 
respond spontaneously. I mean, the impulse to kill a mosquito is strong and apparently honorable. <laughs> when I was up in my seclusion cabin, I don't really know what happened, but it was fly hatching season. Yeah, really awful. And when I came outside and the buzzing of the hatched flies was so strong, I thought it was bees. And I looked up on the roof and uh, there was just gazillions of them. But a few of them, and they were fine because, you know, that's their world. I had mine. But a few of them had the very bad karma to incarnate inside the house. And it was death to all intruders. There was just no way. These big, horrible buzzing. Yeah, they just were creepy. And I apologized to them, but I told them it was just their bad luck. But then, looking at them, also thinking, as I was saying on Sunday service yesterday, I mean, how much fun can it be, after all, to be just a big, hideous fly? Nobody likes you, except perhaps other flies, you know? And it's just like, maybe to dispatch them faster is a better thing than to just leave them into their misery. I mean, you can be sentimental about these things. But on the other hand, there's just, it just is what it is. And Master endorses us. These, in, these are instruments of evil. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but they didn't get me a good vibe. I'm, I'm sure if I were a scientist studying flies, I would find something very interesting. Um, Michael and Catherine Olivier's daughter is a, natu a naturalist, a biologist. She loves those things. And I remember her taking me outside of our house over there and showing me this incredible spider web with the spider in it. And we had, I mean, I really, I have a completely different relationship to them. And she, she herself was so into that sort of thing that she actually... Ha would feed them. She would capture the flies and feed them to the spiders so that she could just watch the whole thing happening. Because from that point of view, from the point of view of isn't it a marvelous creation, how the whole thing plays together, you can also appreciate it. But then this other point that Master makes, which is he just says simply from a karmic point of view, a human life is more important. And that's a, a, a conversation that goes on all the time. Who's to say the elephants aren't? Why are human beings valued above this and that? And, and dolphins are so much nicer and elephants are so much more sophisticated and tigers are so much more authentic. And then you just sort of have these conversations and you can never finish them. How do you, how do you ever go anywhere? So it's, I find it, I have found it extremely restful to have Master just make definitive statements. And he backs it up with intelligent remarks. It's not just sentimental. It's that the human body has the nervous system that is capable of perceiving infinity. And that's what makes the human being the most evolved. It's not by any means because we're the nicest. You know, we're by, in many ways we're not the nicest at all because we, we are capable of having perverted appetites. Whereas very few animals do. Although I have to, I have to admit... This woman friend of mine who's very much into dogs, when I was doing the book about uh, answered prayers, miracles and answered prayers, she gave me this long, fascinating story which I wrote up completely all about her various dogs and all these things that happened. In the end, it unfortunately didn't fit in the book, but it was very fun to work with it. She said to me emphatically that dogs have personalities as distinct as human beings I mean, they have bodies that are different, but she said their personalities are different. And then part of her story was how she was a, a dog nanny somewhere, but the dog she was a nanny for was a perverted old man. <laughs> and his perverse habits began to infect her dogs. Yeah, I mean, it's, but she wasn't 
she was just telling me the truth. So she had to quit the job because the bad company was having such a bad effect on her dogs. So there obviously is some capacity, or at least in higher animals, dogs are dogs and horses. Master said are way up there in terms of their capacities to reason. So apparently dogs can have perverted appetites. Some of them are mean and who knows. But what really makes us, what makes the human body valuable is that by the time a jiva has incarnated in a human body, it's ready. It's ready to move really toward God realization. And the dolphins just can't do it because the nervous system just isn't there. And, you know, that's why the human nervous system that we have, so so much of it is... Uh, under, unused and the uh, average scientist cannot figure out why God is so inefficient but the sages know because it's a potential that we're working with and those are the different things that uh, science and religion are all coming together to figure out so therefore we have to protect it because it's a great privilege to have a human body and it's irresponsible to throw it away and that's really the simple words it's just irresponsible once you have this, um, we, our karma demands that we utilize it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lack of gratitude and it's, it's squandering. It's squandering an opportunity to throw the body away, which is why suicide, among other reasons, is an unfortunate decision because the opportunity was there to transcend and to grow and instead that opportunity was rejected. And uh, that's, that's what happens. And then you have to earn it have to earn it again. Um, sometimes miscarriages and deliberately terminated pregnancies, not always, but sometimes it's a person who in some way was not um, fully appreciative of what they had before, and so now they have to um, pay back before they can have that opportunity again. I mean, it, this isn't anybody being unkind. This is just the way the physics of, of karma work. If you squander what's given to you, I mean, think about it in normal life. If you give somebody gifts and they just squander them, you buy them nice clothes and you find them just lying on the ground and not paying any attention to it, you're just not inclined to give more. The gratitude is essential. So all of that works together. That allows us to bite mosquitoes. But now him saying, such insects are instruments of evil because they do um, distract and depress and uh, deflect our attention from higher things. Swami talked about when they were building Lake Shrine, there were just all these little gnats. And in the midst of all of that, there were all these gnats just trying to make their lives miserable while they were trying to put, put that place together. I know when we would travel in India on pilgrimage, I would always carry a, a big, big silk scarf with me Actually, it was the, had been one of my light bearer scarves. I mean, a really big one. Because then whenever we accidentally got somewhere where there were a lot of bugs, I could put the whole thing over me. It was my essential backpack item. For those of you who are going to India, it's worth remembering. Sri Yukteswar's mandir in Puri was unpredictable as to whether or not there would be bugs or not. So I always had that with me. Because uh, it was just so annoying to be in some beautiful holy place and then have all these things crawling on you. Whenever you read about, like Ramana Maharshi, uh, when he left home and he found some hole in the wall of the temple and just sat there and meditated, they talk about bugs just crawling and all I can do is, well, someday, but not yet. 
<laughs> All right, any questions or comments? You see how marvelous, what marvelous implications there are in just even a few comments here? As I mean, when dolphin, when they first started discovering who dolphins were, you know, all that they could do, all in, again, in the 60s and the 70s, it was all so exciting. I just, I couldn't, I didn't have any equipment to answer why dolphins weren't better than us, but I could just somehow vaguely sense that they were, weren't. Swami even said, you know, a lot of these animals, and I know there is another answer to this too, human beings are not behaving well, but a lot of species are dying out because we're changing yugas. And the same things don't continue. And Swami commented once about the huge save the alligators in Florida. He said, why? He said, they're vicious, dull-minded creatures. Why would we want to work so hard to keep them? He said, if they're leaving, just let them go. Because in higher ages, you, you don't have that kind of, um, I will use the word bestiality. You don't have that kind of threat to human life. You know, in one of these hurricanes, one of the really awful things that happened, I don't know what the result of it was, but some alligator sanctuary was uh, flooded and so all the animals got loose. And ever since they've been restoring the alligators to the Everglades, now people are being eaten by the alligators again. Which, on one hand, if you're going to be just a, an anti-human, an anti-human stupidity, you can say, well, that's the right thing to have happen. You know, down with humans who are making such a mess of it, but on the other side of it, wow, it's, it's, it's all very, very complicated. And the good news is God is in charge. And one has to say that to oneself repeatedly. If you make the mistake of listening to the news or anything like that, you have to say, fortunately, these people are not really in charge. They're just think, they just think they are. But God is in charge. And our job is to get there and then everything else follows. Number 265. He once said, Master once said, that disease germs come like clouds into this world from tamasic universes. Disease germs come like clouds into this world from tamasic universes. So we have the germs come from an entire universe where everybody is a germ, where the whole universe is tamasic. Yeah, wow. There's a lot going on that we don't know about. We get so nervous about who's president. <laughs> on this planet, right? Okay? Their sole purpose is to wreak havoc. I mean, they're just evil. They're tamasic. And the punishment they receive from man in his constant war against disease is their destiny. Just think about all that. There's all these people out to kill the germs and then the germs are trying to win. And it, it's just really... Um, I'm going to stop and I'll go on for just a moment. And the, um, they're from Tamasic universes and their purpose is to wreak havoc. In his Essence of the Bhagavad Gita commentary, Swami makes a comment that directly described the attorney that Ananda faced in the lawsuits that we went through through the 90s. This one attorney came on the scene in the middle of the 90s. He was in the, um, the sexual accusation, the sexual harassment lawsuit not that we were harassed, but we were accused of harassing. Harassing is the small word. But there was the character assassination lawsuit, and there was, there was the SRF lawsuit, and this lawyer ended up representing everybody by the end. He was um, a liar. 
I mean, a liar, like, you know, like he, he'd had gone out for Indian food for dinner and he would say he went to a Mexican restaurant. You know, he'd uh, gotten a new car and he would tell you, no, he hadn't. I mean, those are, I'm just using very random examples that are not specific, but it came out more like this whole file is full of, you know, declarations proving my point, you know, and there was nothing in it but the telephone book. Or he would just make constantly say things that were untrue, even when it made no difference. Sometimes he would lie to support his case because the court system is based on the idea that people will tell the truth. And the actual capacity to unravel it, when, when an officer of the court, like a, an attorney, decides not to tell the truth, the, the system to unravel that is so almost impossible that a person without moral scruples who figures that out, like this man did, you basically, you have free reign. It's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to dismantle it. It's a mess. But that's a whole other subject. God is in charge, remember? None of this. So, but he was, he was so bewildering to us. And Swami wrote in the Gita commentary, he said, tamasic people. Now, tamas is not necessarily low energy. It's just dark energy. Because you can be very rajasic tamasic. Rajasic means energetic, but tamas is darkening. So you can be very energetic and very dark. Tamas can also be dull energy. But Swami wrote, tamasic people tell lies for the pleasure of the confusion it causes and for the sense of power it gives them to create that confusion. I said, that's what we were up against. And said, yes, he said. I said, that's exactly what the temperament is. Um, at the present time, a man in our country who has a great deal of power is the same kind of person. He tells lies for the pleasure of the chaos that it causes. And it's completely confusing to people who don't have that characteristic. But it is a stage in personal development where you have a certain amount of power and if you lack um, the inherent moral understanding that untruth is a huge danger to the one lying because the more untruth you tell, sooner or later, the more untruth you receive. And, and the more untruth you tell, the farther away you get from divine reality, which is why on the spiritual path, telling the truth is so essential as a moral quality because we're trying to break the, you know, this massive illusion, Maya itself, this complete lie that we live, that we imagine ourselves to be separate and egoic and vulnerable and, and mortal and uh, lonely and unloved and all these, all these lies that Maya is telling us that we need to become extremely scrupulous about always affirming the truth as we see it because it's part of the magnetism that gives us the power finally to push Maya back. So someone who is consistently ignoring even the factual nature of things, creating more and more untruth, the karma of that is not good. I mean, the least of it is that you yourself will be subject to the same kind of treatment because you just accumulate these huge karmic debts which sooner or later act themselves out. And when they do, it's not pretty. And there is no such thing as future. When it happens then, it's now. And you don't like it anymore now then than you would now.
but we don't have to worry about it. It works itself out. But these germs come from tamasic planets. That's where I was going with that. For the purpose of wreaking havoc. Because wreaking havoc is how they enjoy themselves. You know, everybody enjoys themselves in a different way. Many, many, many years ago when our uh, temple was uh, the storefront over on California Avenue, many, many years ago, and across the street was this, this old Quonset hut that had been converted into a nightclub, which was called the Zodiac or the Edge, the Edge. It became the Edge after a while. And we were there for seven years and it shifted. And uh, one night, and, and we would come down from our, we had an upstairs, back of the building upstairs. It was actually very nice because it was completely silent, back of the building upstairs. And we'd come down sometimes after our evening programs and they would be getting started across the street and you could actually feel the vibrations through the street. It was so strong. And one night, I was riding my bicycle home and I went a route that took me around to the back of that building, which was actually turned out to be the entrance. I had, didn't really realize that. And it was swarming with people. And that's what they looked like to me. They were swarming and they were all dressed in black. Not because it was a costume party, but that's just because that's what people wear. And people apparently who go there to do whatever they do inside that building wear black to do it. And I, I came around the corner and there were just all these swarming people trying to get into this place and thump, thump, thump. And it's just like, it would just, you take me in there, that would be like hell. And they were, they were eager to get in. I thought, my, my, what an interesting world this is. You know, this for them was a great pleasure. For me, it would have been really kind of like a torture chamber except I can usually find a way to enjoy myself, but that would have been a real challenge. But there we were, we were all human beings. We could have had coffee together and talked about who knows what, but when it came time to see where our enjoyment would come from, how different it is. So these germs, these poor germs, are getting a lot of uh, happiness insofar as they're able to get happiness by coming in and making our lives miserable because they're from a tamasic place and their pleasure is in darkening. And then human beings are at war with them. And it's just incredible. I was talking to a friend about cancer cells, a medical person, and just talking about how smart the cells are and what the problem is. You, you take a certain treatment for a certain amount of time, and then after a while, depending on the cancers and the treatment, but the cells figure out how to work around it. You deny them what they need to eat and they find another way to make it. And they're just so darn clever. And they keep morphing and they keep morphing. It really is, it's a conscious war. They have their job to do and we have our job to do. And, and the universe, the world being what it is, because of the, the level that we're at right now in early Dwapara, we don't know how to protect ourselves against these germs or we're an open season for them. Swamiji writes in the Time Tunnel. The Time Tunnel, which is the book he wrote, it's, it's a, like junior, junior fiction, but not really. It's a really fun book. And it's about these two brothers. It's, you know, he, he starts with himself and his own brother. There's just this tiny little shadow of uh, recognition. He gives the, the two boys his name and his brother's name, Donnie and Bobby. And... Uh, uh, and then they, they discover this way to go back and forth in time. 
So they go back and they go forward. And the fun of that book, when Swami, when I read the part about Egypt, because Swami just tells a whole story about how the pyramids were built. He describes it and he describes the musical instruments and how they created sound waves and how the, 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 the builders were actually musicians, essentially, who created certain sound waves and then the blocks would move according to the sound waves. And then he talked about a, a forward age in which um, everything was in such harmony that you didn't really need screen or glass on your windows because all the insects lived in their part and all the human beings lived in their part and we just all had agreements that we could coexist very nicely. It was just a sort of a little thing he threw in. Later I said, sir, writing fiction must be so relaxing because you can just write from pure intuition without having to justify it at all. <laughs> and he agreed. That's in fact, that was right. I believe what he wrote was authentic because he doesn't respect fiction writers who are not authentic, among other reasons. But I think it was also authentic because it was. But he didn't have to explain it. He could just declare it. And so he enjoyed it greatly. But thinking about that in a higher age, where there was no discussion in, in there about disease or health or anything like that, but you can see in a higher age you could be working on a completely different level with these things. I remember a Star Trek movie from decades ago where the entire theme was they'd come back in time and one of their people had been hurt and they were going to do a brain operation and the Star Trek crew was just frantic to rescue their crew member from this barbaric, torturous, terrible experience and get him back to the future where he could be cured by um, less horrendous means than the best uh, medicine that we have today. It's, it's just totally fun when you start going there. So, now we're going to learn even worse about the germs. The, these germ clouds are fallen souls. It is possible for the soul to fall even that low if it has become completely steeped in evil. Ordinarily, once a soul evolves to the human level, it doesn't fall back again to a lower level. If ever it does so, as happens occasionally, it descends for one lifetime only to the level of the higher animals. One may have to be sent back repeatedly, but it is always for only one lifetime. If a person continues for too long in his error, however, he may be thrown back very far down the ladder of evolution. When one descends so low, he doesn't completely lose his awareness that there is something amiss. The very knowledge is a great punishment. Oh, Lord. There are whole galaxies, as I've sometimes mentioned, where evil predominates. From those galaxies it is that epidemics come. Whole galaxies of evil fallen souls who have gone down to being germs. There's probably a captain of the germs. You know, I mean, there, there, there's a whole world there. But, but think of someone... Uh, there was a, a, a person at Ananda who, who had a very difficult time and didn't really last there. It was because the person had tremendous energy, great deal of intelligence, a lot of really good ideas, but nobody would ever listen to anything they said. And Swami commented that that person had abused power in the past. And it had a great deal of power, but had not used it wisely. And as a consequence... 
still had that memory of being powerful, but it was far more subtle than just them being weak. It was like all of the uh, accoutrements of that incarnation were still present, but no capacity to express it, to constantly be thwarted and ignored. A much more fitting punishment, you know, than just to be a serf somewhere. To, to know that you have it, but nobody's going to listen to you. And so, uh, just imagine being a germ. And, and how, I, don't know, I don't know what part of you senses that things are amiss. How do you even think about it? Swami talked about that time when he was in Calcutta, and there were a group of children begging. It was at the railroad station. A group of begging children all came around him, you know, in their way. If you've ever been there, you've seen it. And they're all, you know, they're there for a reason. That very few of them look other than the caste that they're in at that moment. I don't, they're, they're perfectly fine people, but they're caught there. But Swami said there was one girl there, just a young girl, eight or nine, who was also begging. But he looked at her and he, he, he felt that her whole consciousness was, how did I get here? And he said he felt that she had been a very wealthy person who had been so selfish that this was her situation. But in, he could see just in her that where the other children were just doing what they did without any thought, her position was, you know, there's been a big mistake. <laughs> so somehow or another, I don't know how you take that all the way down to being a germ, but somehow or another. And then what happens after that? Do you suddenly like be the first to die? Do you, do you like, do you drink, do you drink the antibiotic on purpose? Or do you just hang out and not pollute? Or do you just automatically, once you're done doing that horrible thing, how do you learn from there? It's, just, it's all just fascinating. Whole galaxies of fallen souls. I mean, for one thing you have to say, don't worry. Whoever, whatever they're doing now, it will all balance in the end. It's like nobody gets away with anything. And don't, don't get uptight just because in our little picture of it, that's my was my experience with Swami Kriyananda over many years. I, I because I I have confidence in my own perception of reality. It's just something I've always had. Sometimes I'm overconfident and I'm not always right, and it also does me in. But also I have a certain confidence in my perceptions. So when I would perceive situations or people or circumstances differently than Swamiji, I didn't have the mindset. Well, I'm always wrong because I, I, I work hard to not be wrong. But what, what gradually came to me, invariably when I saw it different, it was just that his frame of reference was bigger. And I would reason from what I could see to where I thought we were going, and, and I wasn't wrong. It's just that he would reason from where it started to where it was going, which made what was happening in the present a completely different picture than the one that, that I was seeing. And it was a, it was a very um, helpful m attitude to get because it both gave me the dignity of my own intelligence and it also gave me the humility of a disciple. And it's a, it's a good attitude to have at any time whenever you read or hear about anything that you don't quite understand. It's not necessarily that you're wrong, it just may be that the picture is bigger than you think. Like, why are the dolphins not better than the humans? until I really heard all that about the nervous system and the capacity to perceive infinity, it was really anybody's guess. 
but then you get a bigger perspective on it. So there are these galaxies that are so evil, that are fallen souls. So a lot of people who do bad things, it'll work out, and they'll have, they'll have their chance. And the only thing that, even for those who are the victims of that kind of evil, I mean, we ourselves we had that horrible attorney who was, was extremely intelligent. He was just evil. But he was unfortunately not ineffective. He was actually pretty darn effective, and it was a huge struggle to work against him because he was smart and rajasic and tamasic all at the same time. But it's always our karma, too. It's just always our karma. I, I had to, I, it's a funny thing because you're always wanting to rescue your friends. You're always wanting to support people when you know someone is wrong, uh, someone else is wrong, and you know. But you have to just stand back and think. It's really nothing happens, except that it's a balanced story. You know, sometimes people will want me to side with them, and it's tricky because sometimes they're right, <laughs> and other people really are not doing what they ought to do. But we're all in it together. And I don't just mean the Ananda family, which I do mean that. But we're just all in it together. We're all on this planet perfectly meeting each other. This is why God is in charge. And even though the people in charge are not impressive at this particular time, what did we expect in early Dwapara? Swamiji said in Satya Yuga, we're in charge which is a little more comforting. <laughs> People like us, the world is more sensible. But it's not sensible now because a lot of souls with dark karma are also getting their chance. Their whole galaxy is de- devoted to germs. I mean, these dark souls have to be somewhere because they are also a part of God and they also have to have the experiences they need to wake up. So places, situations are arranged for them. And if we, with our more refined karma, happen to be in their proximity, or even, God forbid, under their lack of mercy, which may well happen, that's because this situation was also set up for us. And the only way we can lose is not by dying or suffering or uh, any of those things. The only way we can lose is by not using our experiences to deepen our commitment to higher principles. As long as we use our experiences to expand our consciousness, there's no loss. And if we are pressed to the ground and barely make it and mess up a lot of the time, that's just simply saying that the test is the right test. What else can I say? I've, this last month I've uh, been going to this gym nearby. My chiropractor sent me for various reasons. And my enthusiasm for challenging exercise is... Is there a smaller number than zero? <laughs> it's, it's really, but I, you, you know, I'm of an age, and I began to really, really sense my age. Sort of suddenly, I began to, be, I began to lose a lot of ground, and it just seemed uh, careless of me not to pay attention. So I've, I've been helped by this man who's been reconnecting the parts of my brain and stuff like that, but I did about seven or sessions or something like that. I just finished the last one. <laughs> And, but of course, the more, the stronger you get, the more they push. And, you know, today was just awful. <laughs> and just right in the middle of it, I thought, this is so not fun. This is really not fun. But 
it's because he was trying to make me stronger. And he wouldn't have been earning his rather high, high fee if he wasn't pushing on me. But I so didn't enjoy it. But I thought, what's the difference, Asha, between everything else, you know, that befalls us? God wouldn't be doing his job if he wasn't pushing us. You know, I, I don't want to say I'd rather be pushed emotionally than physically. I'm just more accustomed to being pushed emotionally than physically. <laughs> I manage usually to avoid the other. But really, you wouldn't be serving anything if you just went there and I just said, okay, let's do, let's, let's do this exercise. You know? <laughs> just like, okay, I'll do this five times. That'll do. It just puts this big ugly weight on you. Okay. Number 266. Are we ready? Did Mahatma Gandhi keep up his Kriya Yoga practice after his initiation by you? I asked the Master. Now, isn't that a good question? Yeah. yeah. I, love, I love Master's answer to Gandhi was a man of his word, the Master replied. In other words, he promised, and that was that. He was a great man and a man of truth. Yes, he kept up the practice. It's a very nice answer. He's also not just saying yes, he's really telling you why. Of course he did, because he was so into keeping his word and being truthful. Was he a master? Great as he was, answered the guru, he was not that great. Rather, um, he was a great moralist, but for all that, far below the spiritual level of a master like Sri Yukteswar. I would say of Gandhi that he was certainly fit to untie the latchet of my master's shoes, um, but not greater. And that's a reference to John the Baptist speaking of Jesus' coming and saying the one is coming, um, there cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. So it was a very poetic way of saying it. Gandhi could untie the shoes of Sri Yukteswar. Um, he was great, but he created no saints as a master would have done. And, and that, was the, that was the reference that I was thinking about earlier when I was talking about channeled information and so on. That's also a really interesting just statement in itself. The reason you can tell who he was spiritually is that he didn't, he didn't create any saints. He didn't have that power to completely spiritually transform people's consciousness. But Master is also talking there about the real nature and the way that spiritual progress really happens. And Swami says this over and over, but the longer I am on the spiritual path, the more subtle this gets for me and the more I'm beginning to understand it. Someone was here earlier this evening and was saying she's been listening to a certain number of talks by Swamiji and especially ones that he did in the last six months of his life. And she was referencing to the fact, she was just casually saying, even though he told the same stories, I've heard the same stories many times. And she said it was the last six months. I said, at the end of Swami's life, especially in those last months, it didn't matter what the subject was. Within a very short period of time, he would tell you that he read Autobiography of a Yogi. It changed his life completely. He went across the country. He became Master's disciple. And then he would usually begin to weep and he would then talk a little bit about Master. It didn't really matter where he started. That was just, like, that was the only conversation he had at that point. And he, he said Rajasi had almost no conversation. Rajasi would rarely speak, and when he did speak, he would often just say, Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. 
And uh, the, the fact, let me just think where I wanted to say with this. The teachings really help us to, to master our confusion and direct us in the right way. And the next entry here, I think, is about doing Kriya. The techniques really um, have a tremendous um, influence on our state of consciousness. But it all comes down to this magnetic relationship with the Master that, that the divine law is that we, we cannot liberate ourselves from our own delusion, that there has to be this force coming in through the Master that lifts us out of this experience. And so at the end of everything, which is what Swami's life was so fascinating there at the end, after all that he had done and accomplished and endured and, you know, just everything, overcome and, and lived through, all he would tell us over and over again was, I read autobiography and I met Master. Because he, he the more sensitive and elevated his consciousness became, the more he just knew that all of it was just the power of grace just flowing through the guru. Everything else he'd done was to put him in a receptive position to that grace. But none of it mattered. All that mattered was that he was receptive to that grace. Because that's where the power comes from. I mean, that's where transformation takes place. The master liberates us. And so his comment about Gandhi that he didn't make any saints because he was doing something else. Of course, he liberated India. I mean, by no means are we discounting his life as insignificant. But in this particular area, it, it wasn't who he was because it, it wasn't who he was. He wasn't, he wasn't a guru of that type. And so it's often true that you really actually know more about the master by looking at the people that he's changed. Swami Kriyananda talked about meeting Swami Shivananda when he was in India in, the, in, in 1960 or so. And Swami Chidananda, who was uh, Shivananda's, uh, one, of his main, one of his main disciples, who became the president of his organization, was sort of an heir. His role in Shivananda's work, the Divine Life Society, was very similar to Swami Kriyananda's. And they were peers and they, they really liked each other. Um, but Swami said he just didn't resonate with Shivananda at all. There was just, he, he just didn't feel anything from him. But he was very, um, he, he really understood, he really had a high regard for Chidananda. And so he's there with Shivananda and Chidananda, and he's seeing the devotion Chidananda has for Shivananda. And Swami said, if, if that man could win that devotion from this man, then I know that he is really something. Isn't it just how interesting how that works? And often when people are moving into Ananda and so on, they'll tell me, oh, well, I don't really connect with Yogananda or I don't really understand Kriyananda. And I said, well, do you like everybody else? Oh, I love everyone here. I said, well, that's what you're seeing. You just don't know it. You don't realize that all that you're seeing is the result of their consciousness, but it's not always easy to to grasp that until, until time passes. But one of the ways you can tell if a path belongs to you is if you like the people because that's who you'll become. 
and if you if you like them and want to be like them. It was a very interesting point in Ananda's history, and it, it happened about 1980 or so. It happened real, relatively early. But where people began to be drawn to Ananda through the people of Ananda without meeting Kriyananda or even necessarily knowing Master. But it was like the fruit of the, of the path was becoming dynamic enough that it had magnetism itself. It was, it was really, because I watched these things, I, I, I paid attention and I thought, isn't that interesting? It's just sort of like a turning point in the whole project. Well, why don't we take a few minutes break and then we'll finish. During the break, we started a discussion about um, a yogi in India that many of us have visited at different times. His name is Swami. He's passed now. His name was Swami Gyanananda. And he was a Swiss man who read Autobiography of a Yogi in Switzerland in his very early 20s. And as I recall his story, I believe he read Autobiography of a Yogi and finished the book on like March 7th, 1952, or something like really close to that, like just when Master died. So he was totally uh, taken by Master, but Master had already left his body by the time, by that time. So he decided to go to India. So as a young man, he started walking from Switzerland, and he walked for three months and walked to India. And then he, I, I read this recently, he, when he got to the border, they asked him why he was coming, and I think he showed them autobiography of a yogi or something like that, and the guard just went like that, and, you know, and let him in. And uh, he, he lived in India for the rest of his life. Um, there was, there's a photograph of one of the temples in Orissa. I, mean, I think that's the place. Anyway, there's a picture of, from India. The, uh, Gyanananda and Swami Kriyananda looked a little bit alike. That was all I was trying to say. They both had the same beard and slightly the same face. And there's a couple of pictures with him in it. And you think when you're looking at Swami Kriyananda. But Gyanananda um, did not really participate that much in YSS or any organization. He just became a, a wandering sadhu. And when we started going to India, at some point we got connected up with him. And by that point, he was elderly, older. And when we knew him, he was living in this house that one of his disciples had built up in Dehradun. And the point of all this, he was a very colorful and marvelous character. And he chanted and was just, he was a great, wonderful yogi. He's written an autobiography. I don't know the name of it, but I'm sure you could find it. And it's definitely full of interesting stories. And he practiced Kriya Yoga. He was a serious devotee. He was a wonderful devotee. But the whole point of all of this is, I don't know whether it was the first visit, but somewhere in one of our visits to him, he acquired this dog, this really obnoxious dog that was just, that's, that's, that barked all the time and snapped at people. Just a most unpleasant dog. And uh, Gyanananda became deeply committed to this dog. And so whenever you would go there, you would also have to deal with the dog. It was just sort of part of the experience of going to see Gyanananda. And he was always working with this dog. It was a, an important thing. But what came up in the break is I just heard a story that I had not heard before that Saranya was telling me about one of our visits. I was there, but I didn't hear this story. And after we had done this kirtan, which is what we always did with him, and he talked, and we were all sitting around having prashad, Ramurti and a few others were up close where the Swami was and we were all in his little beautiful house there and, and the little dog was there and at one point Gyananatna, this is Saranya just told me took a napkin and, and hid the dog from the view of everybody there 
And he explained that that dog was a fallen yogi, and that's why he'd ended up with Gyanananda. And he was embarrassed to eat in front of human beings because the way a dog eats is so gross. And so he would protect him because he wouldn't eat when anyone was around and the other people were around because he, it was just too mortifying to him. And so he would, he would protect him from that embarrassment and allow him to eat. Now, in the light of all that we've been talking about, I mean, that is, I never heard that story before. What a story. I mean, I completely believe it, all of it. I mean, Gyanananda's ability to perceive it and his loyalty to the dog and it, and then really amazing oh he was a very unpleasant dog he must have just been in such a bad mood over everything that had happened I'm told not by but because many of us Ananda people who lived in India would go up and see him off and I'm told he gradually got better but um, anybody who was part of Gyanananda's world would also talk I, was the dog called Dharma yeah because that's the name no because that's the name of you, the dog that I mean, when Yudhishthira was walking to heaven at the end of the Mahabharata, a dog attached himself to him. And by the time all his brothers and Draupadi, everybody else had died, and it was just Yudhishthira and the dog. And then he was going to be, it was time for him to, Indra came to take him to heaven, but said the dog couldn't come. And Yudhishthira said, this is my, all my brothers have died, and all my brothers have left me. The only one who stuck with me is his dog, and I'm not going to leave him now. So I'm just not going to go to heaven. And then the dog turned into Lord Dharma. This was Yudhisthira's last and final test was his loyalty to this dog. So, so there's uh, Gyanananda also has this loyalty to this dog, which I'm sure it's just, that's what it was. I was remembering a story and where it came from I don't exactly remember, but it's one of those weird stories about um, a llama. This is, these are Tibetan stories. The Tibetan stories are always way out there. So this elderly lama, this young woman, who's one of the native inhabitants near the monastery, is coming back from the fields. And she's accosted by this lama from the monastery, who's an older man, who's re- greatly respected as a saint. And the lama tries to rape her, basically, or tries to persuade her to have sexual relationship with him. And she's just horrified, and she rushes home and she tells her parents that she's been accosted by this llama. I don't think he tried to rape her. He didn't try to force himself on her. But he tried to persuade her in that moment and she totally refused. She goes home and tells her parents that this outrageous thing has happened. They say, if such a holy man wants to lie with you, then you should say yes. It's a great honor. This is not nothing to refuse. So they go back looking for the holy man because the parents think, well, if you want my daughter, we would be honored to give you our daughter. So they get back to the Lama. This is all supposed to be true. And the Lama says, oh no. He said, I'm not at all interested. He said, there was, I saw that a Lama who has some bad karma was about to incarnate in the womb of a donkey. And I was trying to save him and bring him into a human body. He said, but the moment passed, and so he had to go into the donkey's body. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's one, of those, it's one of those pictures where you look at it from here to here, and he looked at it from here to here. You know? Yeah, it's, you just have to... I love stories like that because it just tells you 
how different the world is than our neat little story of how we have it all organized. Yeah. Owie zowie. <laughs> when in the book, uh, Graceful Exits, some of the most um, interesting stories were all the Tibetan stories because the Tibetans are just so unusual. My, I think my favorite one was this old lama was in his 90s and he could hardly see anymore and he just couldn't do anything and he just decided he would just stop eating and it was just, he was done with his body. So he stops eating and then the, the other monks notice that he's not eating. One of the monks goes to him and says, it's the middle of winter. If you die now, we'll be so uncomfortable at your funeral. Don't just be a nuisance. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. So he ate until the spring and then he stopped eating. <laughs> Oh my gosh, and we're we're so uh, delicate, you know. Just so, uh, how do you want to say? You know, just have to. We have to protect every little thing, and and they don't. I mean, the Tibetans especially, they really don't. His life and death was so. There was the other one in there. I'm unfortunately the next one is a really long one, so I'm not really going to be able to do much with it. It's all about Kriya, but the other one in that book that I loved was when the, the master sits down in front of his monastery and basically announces that he's going to leave his body and is just trying to leave his body. And all the monks begin to weep. And he comes back into his body and says, basically, I'm so ashamed of you. Here we are, we're doing all this, and I'm just leaving my body. And look at you, you're behaving like children. You don't understand anything at all. And so he stays for another month and tries to teach them a little more that they haven't learned. And then they all come together. Then he sits down and he leaves his body. It's just a wholly different reality than what we work with. We will now start with 267, which is actually rather interesting. Um, When I was in India, the master said, I knew that I must return to America, yet I felt a strong affinity with India, where the very soil breathes love for God. And then I saw all of you waiting for me, those especially whom I had yet to meet in this life. You were my real family, much more so than my blood relatives in India. Those relatives were, except for a handful, spiritual strangers to me. You were my own, and this was my true home, my family in God. It's a very sweet reading, isn't it? Um, He says... You know, I I sort of had felt really uncomfortable about this one until I realized those relatives were, except for a handful, he makes an exception. Because having met a number of his relatives in India, I didn't want their feelings to be hurt. But they can can go into the except for a handful (laughs) section. Um, But also, I mean, uh, the reason Swami included this, he wasn't really trying to say anything about Master's relatives. But he was just talking about, he, he's urging us not to be sentimental about family. That's really what happens. People become very sentimental about the people they're born to, as if that were um, spiritually significant. There was a, an interesting conversation with Swami about someone who's, who's who had a sense of distance from the, their, their biological family. And Swami gave the very interesting answer that he said, sometimes 
a devotee, a serious devotee, deliberately incarnates into a, a biological family where there isn't much karmic connection. Because when it comes time to leave the biological family and go join the spiritual family, the devotee doesn't want to feel conflicted between those, those two callings. So it, it can be, there can be nothing wrong with that family, but it might not hold your heart all that strongly. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to not have that much karma with people that you haven't chosen for spiritual reasons. And Swamiji just said you can have enough karma with them to make it a worthwhile birth, but you don't have to try to make connections when the connections aren't there. There's nothing wrong with it. The conversation was from someone who asked if there was anything wrong with, is there anything wrong with me? Because just, they're there, I'm perfectly content, but it doesn't mean anything to me personally. It was just a very interesting statement. When you think about it, when, when, you, when you back up from when you back up from the sentimental relationship that we all have, and se- sentiment is very different than, than true feeling. Sentimental is where we sort of wish it were a certain way, we want it to be a certain way, but it's not necessarily based on intuition or anything, it's just sentiment. When Dr. Lewis met Master, who was his first disciple in America, Dr. Lewis was the president of the Rosicrucian Society and had been president apparently for some time. That was his spiritual path because there was Master wasn't here and that was the closest he could find. So Dr. Lewis asked Master what should he do about continuing with the Rosicrucians because Master had gone, taken him so much farther than the Rosicrucians ever would already. And Master's answer was interesting. He said, we mustn't allow ourselves to be ruled by sentiment which was that there was, you know, there was a certain emotional attachment to it, but it wasn't really a higher calling. I mean, of course, that doesn't mean we should disregard or be mean. In that same conversation about family, Swami made the comment, if they do something active to keep you off the spiritual path, then you're justified in actively rejecting them. But if they don't, you still owe them your upbringing, and you still owe them a degree of respect. But it's all right if no more is, no more is forthcoming. Because also, interestingly, he said, that your family gets an automatic blessing. So even if you don't uh, engage with them on an emotional level that they perhaps even want from you, your serious commitment to the spiritual path is a far greater gift to them than egoic involvement. It's, it's apparently automatic. I mean, when you think about, thinking of parents especially, when you think about the level of sacrifice that's involved in, in birthing and raising a child, it's just you owe a debt. Somebody's really worked hard to make it possible for you to live, especially if they've treated you well or done their best, at least. I mean, you owe them a debt of gratitude. That's honor thy father and thy mother. As a child, you don't realize how much your parents are giving up to raise you. I remember the day I realized that the sort of stick-in-the-mud, lack of spontaneity, concern about uh, what might happen, attitude that was typical of my parents, 
was because they had children. <laughs> so I was blaming them for what was really my fault. Because <laughs> that was where their whole world had to revolve around. So it's, it's an interesting comment. Um, uh, I, Swami also made the comment that sometimes you'll be born into a family because you have a strong connection with one member of that family. But then that one person may have a connection with others in the family. So when you come, I think of it like circles like that. When this is your mother, say, and this is you, and the two of you may intersect like this, but then you have this whole world that she doesn't touch necessarily or he doesn't touch. And then this one may also have all these circles over here, but they may never actually intersect with you. You can see how the circles could just go in whatever direction. So you come to the family because of this strong tie, and then everyone else comes with that one. And so you, you won't necessarily be able to bridge it all the way across. It, families, I used to be very cynical about families, which was not a very mature attitude because I didn't appreciate, because I came to the spiritual path so young and was so deeply devoted to it. My opportunity to have my ego challenged and my heart expanded was continuous from the life in the spiritual community and the demands of the spiritual path. And of course that made me feel quite full and quite engaged. But the majority of people do not live in spiritual community, do not have a guru, do not have guru bhais around them all the time. And if they didn't have family, there would be no, nothing working with them, nothing inspiring them. If they didn't marry and have their own children and, or stay and take care of their parents or whatever it is, they would just live in a little vortex of their own making. But it's family that compels, when people feel compelled to participate in those environments or create children and have to, that that compels them to both service and selflessness, which they might never get otherwise. And that's God's plan. So just because one may transcend that biological identification for a soul union, and this I had to learn, maybe everyone else knew it. There's a really good reason why everybody else has to take care of their own people, because otherwise they might take care of no one. A friend of mine just said to me at a certain point, um, he said, you know, I just had to have children because I was so selfish. He said he just finally realized that he was just living for himself. Everything was just perfectly dandy. But he realized everything was to his liking. And he had enough um, awareness to realize that wasn't a good plan. So he, he had a child so that he could expand beyond himself. But the other touching part of Master, his saying, well, there's several, you know, just what India meant to him compared to America. It's, it's so hard. Um, you know, America was so uncongenial compared to what India was like. The, the first time I ever traveled in India, which was in 1986, it was just so uh, relaxing to just realize how all-pervasive a, a sort of basic understanding of life was. And, you know, on the radio they would be reading the Bhagavad Gita, and I, my favorite was there were these big, this big company of dump trucks, and the dump trucks were always... Um, decorated with beautiful, you know, streamers and so on like that. And it was called the Durga 
Turgamata Truck Company. So, you know, it just, you'd be driving along behind these big trucks, and you'd be, but the, in the midst of all of it, it would say Durgamata Trucking Company. And it's just like, of course, it would be the Durgamata Trucking Company. The other part, the other Indian part that I loved, and they always had a driver and then they always had a, a co pilot to do whatever. And, uh, you know, the buses, everybody's honking their horn. It's such an aggressive driving scene. And the trucks are so just big. And this is the Indian culture versus the American. The, the kind of men or women who would drive those trucks would have a certain heaviness of consciousness that would be, you'd just be very unusual not to find that. And I remember the bus driver would honk his horn in the big Durgamata truck, and then the uh, co-pilot with this beautiful, delicate hand would go like that. And, and urge us to pass, you know, sort of like that. <laughs> and it was like a dance motion. I would watch this beautiful hand just, just like that. And I realized you just would never see that in America. I mean, it's a tiny thing in itself, but it was sort of like you can imagine for a master who was so incredibly sensitive to that. Just, and, and how, you know, you see shrines on the street corners and you never see, of course, you never see anything like that in this country. Even as spiritually awaker as we are now, you just never see it, ever. I remember when we told Swamiji, when we moved into this building from the uh, storefront we had on California Avenue, the last Sunday service over there, we took all the holy things out of the church, and then we processed, chanting from California Avenue, and came in the front doors and carried it all up to here and set it all up on the altar and had a kirtan. It was just, well... Some of the people couldn't quite do it, but others could, you know. Uh, but it was hard. It was very hard for Americans to go down the street chanting like that. We had the example of the Hare Krishnas, but it wasn't necessarily an attractive one. But, but most people swallowed their embarrassment and just went down the street. But I, I said, you know, South America, India, a religious procession would be so common. It's just our country is so materialistic to see someone doing something just out of love for God. It's, there's nothing at all wrong with it. It's just that we're so misguided in so many ways in this country that it's unusual. I've told you all that it was so funny when I, we told Swami we were so proud of ourselves for doing that. His response immediately was, next time have the city close the streets and go down El Camino. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> don't be content with your little tiny effort, you know. Bring it out. Make it really a big thing. Why not? Just why not? Just because other people don't do it. So anyway, Master says, you know, much as he was drawn to India, it must have been so hard for him. And, you know, things were really tough in America. It, the Master had a lot of struggles. Uh, uh, Dhirananda had already betrayed him. I think someone else had sued him by that point. You know, he just was not, he was not having an easy time of it. And as he himself said, when, when Dhirananda turned on him, all the money that Master earned and had been sending back to Mount Washington, he took it all. And he took a lot of the students too. So he bought it in 1925, he'd been working for a decade. And it, then it just was all, the, pretty much all that he acquired, at least at that point. And then another man sued him. Master incorporated, um, when we were being sued, we sort of knew, learned all this history. Actually, the other man sued him afterwards, I think, but Master incorporated and put everything in a different legal structure before he went to India because he'd been through this litigation already. And I think the next time he was sued, 
he had it all in order and it was he did much better he was sued twice by his own disciples but he also says in india you sit there and everybody takes care of you he said in america i have to pay all the bills with my own effort i have to it's not only do i have to support the work i have to support the disciples in india no one would even consider that i should support the disciples they would support me and he talks elsewhere about sitting under a tree somewhere and somebody dropping a huge pile of rupees on his lap and just saying you know if you'll just stay here we'll take care of everything and instead he has to come back to america where he doesn't know whether they're going to be able to meet the mortgage next i mean it, it's easy to sort of say oh, well he was a master but he was also living a human life and it was very tiresome you know just to constantly be misunderstood and so on but then i remembered those of you and then especially those i hadn't yet met this is such a sweet thought i mean he his work wasn't finished and he had to come back so he did to understand how how real that it that was for him it it's sort of hard to really grasp it but it's it's helpful to really grasp but he wasn't he wasn't pretending he was because it's it's hard to understand how a master can be so far beyond us and yet how his experiences can be relevant to us it's it's just a very when you can really feel the extent to which they have elevated humanity rather than not participating in it to elevate it is quite different than to not be touched by it i i can't really say it more than that is something that i've been working with a lot just trying to because when i think that they're not touched by it my way of trying to mimic that is not to transcend but to suppress and suppression is not the same as transcendence suppression is i still feel it but i think i shouldn't so therefore i'll say that i don't and maybe even i'll persuade myself that i don't but it goes underground and and swami says it just comes out in some weird way later when you really don't even know where it's coming from whether this life or the next so to actually understand that there's a wholly other way to experience it which is um to be completely unafraid of all the feelings that come with being a human being but just allow them to be part of what you're experiencing and then simultaneously experiencing it from a higher level i i don't know if that's it all clear but it's a very important point i always i was always so puzzled when i would read the life of ramakrishna which was an he was an important teacher for me before i came to ananda and somewhat after but especially before and there's this he had a nephew named hridai who was also kind of a thorn in his side hridai was kind of a i don't he he was just a bit of a he let his position with ramakrishna give him a bit of a swelled head and he wasn't always the most charming guy but he was very devoted to taking care of of ramakrishna and ramakrishna needed care and he was very devoted to hridai but when hridai died ramakrishna played out this this two sides of his own experience and on one side he would dance in ecstasy and talk about how he watched hridai's spirit ascend into the light i don't know if he declared hridai was liberated or not but certainly it was good karma to have served 
a master like that. So then he would dance in ecstasy because Frida's spirit was free, and he would talk about this. And then in the very next instant, he would just become this completely bereft person, and he would weep about, you know, who will walk with me by the Ganges in the morning? Who will bring me my tea, you know? Who will be there in the night? And he would just, he would just weep like a child. He was inconsolable. And then his mood would shift and he'd go, and I remember that so vividly and just, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to understand it. I didn't forget it, but I just couldn't understand how the two could um, coexist so, so much. Here, there you go. It um, reminds me of Master when he had the wishing well dropped on his foot. And he said, now watch this. <laughs> and That's he right. put his consciousness in his body and they took his consciousness out of his body and he was fine and then he was in pain and then he was fine again. No, that's exactly, it's exactly the same. He just said, look at, my, look at the control I have over my consciousness. I can be in this or not in this. But when he was in it, it would happen. You have to think about Jesus on the cross like that. You know, where was he really? And the story that Swami tells about his dream when he was going to be burned at the stake. Well, he was never actually burned because his friends came in and rescued him and took him away before he was burned. But he contemplated it only as, if, as it, that it would be short-lived, that it would be uncomfortable, but it would be short-lived, and compared to eternity, it wouldn't matter. Um, Master did say that if, you, if you're martyred for God and you go courageously, that you don't suffer. For some reason, I try to remember that one and feel comforted. <laughs> but he said those who just weren't afraid, or, or no, he didn't say that. Those who, who didn't lose faith, didn't, didn't suffer in the way that you would expect. It would seem to me like if the soul knows that the body is finished, people even in automobile accidents talk about how they, they aren't there at the moment of impact. It would seem to me when you would see the lion coming to rip you to shreds, you would realize that this story is finished and I would just go away. Yeah, I'm out of here. So, you, But of course, how could you know? You don't know what happens. Um, crucifixion was a slower death. Although Jesus died faster than he was supposed to. He, I mean, normally the, the death by crucifixion took longer. Jesus' death was, was very quick because he just decided he was done. He saw where this was going and saw no point in prolonging it. All right. Any other comments or questions? It's also that there's Sister Gyanamata's wonderful statement where she wrote to Master in a letter, words to this effect. I know the, that Master sent you here to change the world and you have this life mission, but I like to think you came just for me. And when Master says, I could have stayed in India, but I, you were all here, so I had to come back. It's It's is very appropriate to feel that way. Because, of course, Master can simultaneously belong to everyone. Remember the uh, Rasha Lila, where all the gopis went out to dance with Krishna, and every gopi was dancing with Krishna, and they thought they were alone, they were the only one dancing with Krishna. Not that they were lording it over the other gopis, but they were so entranced that that's the picture you often see, where you see all the gopis, and then each one has their own Krishna. And it's, it's the, the rational mind can't get around it, but it's a very uh, intimate and personal and 
individualized relationship that doesn't in any way uh, diminish anybody else's relationship. And, and it's extremely appropriate to feel that way because, I mean, when you think about the characteristics of a really deep friendship or a deep romance, one of the characteristics of it is this incredible ease that you feel. You know, my, I often talk about my friend Durga because for some reason, which we are both grateful for, we have this, we have this unusual friendship in, um, in what I realized about it one day was that I am completely at ease with her. It's like, I, I, it's almost like self-forgetful almost. I don't mean that it's transcending. But there's, there's just such a profound sense of freedom to be myself and absolute trust that I'll be understood. I mean, not that we never have our disagreements, because we do. But when you, have, when you have that experience anywhere in your life, you know, wherever it might be, with your mother, with your siblings, with your own child, what you get is you get a glimpse of the potential. And, and then you have a measurement of what it feels like to have that much trust. And then you can use that measurement and lay it against your relationship with God and Guru. You know, do I feel that free? Do I feel that respected? Do I feel that confident that, that there will never be a misunderstanding? And that's why we have these human relationships is to teach us what the potential of relationships is because otherwise it's too abstract. I think it, it might help also if you can uh, have faith in it, that God's consciousness is totally unlimited. Um, so in that context, it's meaningless that there's a, an apparent uh, a multiplicity of intimacy there. Right. And there's no, um, there's no selfishness in having a desire to have that for yourself. I mean, that, that sometimes people will think, I don't want to bother God or something like that. But again, it's the same thing if you have any, any, any experience in your human life of any aspect of that, then you, you, it gives you a clue as to what you're really looking for. Because that's where we need to be. We need to be completely at ease. I mean, that, that wonderful story about St. Teresa of Avila, which has so many parts to it, where she was... Uh, going off to found another convent at a very elderly age and she was in this closed wagon fording a stream and the wagon was smashed on the rocks and she was tossed into the current but the next instant she found herself standing on the banks of the river instead. Do I have that correct? And Jesus was standing in front of her and uh, Jesus was sort of apologizing to her for tossing her into the river like that he said, don't be upset, Teresa, this is how I treat all my friends. And then she immediately responded and said, no wonder you have so few, my Lord. <laughs> but there, there's so much about that, that tell, that's so good, but the part of it that's really, that you have to think about is, see how free she was? I mean, to be able to have that much wit at such a moment, in such a time, tells you that her relationship with Jesus was the best possible kind of friendship because it, nothing inhibited her. She was able to just be completely herself in that moment. Now, of course, you know, most of us 
Jesus doesn't come to us. Most of us, Yogananda doesn't appear. Most of us, Kriyananda doesn't appear. He's off the planet. You know, we, we, we don't necessarily have um, that everyday opportunity. So we have to, it becomes more subtle to be able to work it inside of ourselves. But it's like whenever we're afraid, Whenever we think we're going to be misunderstood, I mean, everybody around us is just acting on God's behalf. And anything that we fear, any anxiety we feel, is in some way or another a sign that we're not trusting God enough. I mean, you can run lots of other stories, but everything comes down to whether or not you trust God completely. And it's not always easy to get right to there. But if you think of, about it, pretty much anything long enough, if you trust God completely, then would, you'd never have a moment's anxiety. Why would you? But we do, because we do. It's just the way it is. Those are the rittis. That's the measure of the distance. But we can work on it. Number 268. Master always placed great emphasis on the importance of practicing Kriya Yoga. I recorded his comments one evening. Practice Kriya night and day. It is the greatest key to salvation. Other people go by books and lesser practices, but it will take them incarnations to reach God. Kriya is not only, as I've often said, the airplane route to him, but also the greatest way of destroying present temptation. When you feel that joy within, no evil will be able to touch you. To you, sense pleasures will then seem like stale cheese compared to the nectar of God's joy. While others are talking or idly wasting time, you go out into the garden and do a few kriyas. Whenever you have a free moment, stop, sit down, and do a few kriyas. What else do you need? You could read countless books, and what would they give you? You could seek perfection by adhering to spiritual rules, but rules can be broken. A rule is a fragile stick. If you lean on it too hard, it will break. When you know divine joy, however, nothing will be able ever again to take it from you. I'm going to just comment on these two paragraphs. And I, I, I read, I remembered recently a, a story that I read that was, it's actually, it's a beautiful story. The book is called, I believe it's called Alive. And it was written by about just some decades ago, it was written about a, a soccer team from a rugby team from Ecuador, I think, and they crashed in the Andes. And then, uh, I mean, they crashed way high in the Andes, and everybody assumed that they were dead. But in fact, a, a number of them lived through it, and eventually, that small group came out months later. They were like three months or something that they were stuck up in those mountains. Um, it's a very moving story because. There's a great deal of nobility in it, and there's also a great deal of spirituality. Um, but the, the interesting part in this context is that I had remembered. Um, they were all Catholics from that part of the world, and they were all practicing serious Catholics. And when the plane crashed, some people were killed immediately, but those who were left, among those who were left was the captain of the team. And the man who was the captain of the team was very charismatic and magnetic, and genuinely loved and respected by all the other players, and a natural leader. So in their chaotic, rather desperate situation, they assumed 
you know, their, their flight path was charted, they were on their way to another game. I mean, everybody would know that they had crashed. So the assumption was, we just have to last and they'll find us. So the captain assumed a leadership role and everybody just gave him that leadership role naturally. And time passed and, you know, things got a little tougher. They managed to um, make a radio work. Not for a long time, but they managed to get a radio work and they were able to hear a broadcast from the world beyond. And they heard, they learned over the radio that the search had been called off because enough time had passed, they were so high in the mountains, it was just assumed everyone was gone. Now, the, the captain had been very confident, very powerful, but part of his confidence and his power, and this was the subtle, interesting point, was he was a good Catholic. He, he did what he was supposed to do. He followed all the rules. Now he was in trouble and God was going to rescue them because that was how the system worked. And when that system was taken away from him and he realized that no one was looking for them and they were going to die up there, it just, his, his confidence and his faith just completely evaporated. He felt completely abandoned by God and completely powerless in the situation. And all his magnetism and charisma just evaporated from him and very shortly after he died. Yeah, because he just couldn't do it. Because he was leaning, this is what the phrase was, he was strong as long as he had those rules and could lean on them. But when the rules as he understood them went away, he didn't have any... um, actual experience behind him to sustain him. And then others of them, the most notable ones who ended up, eventually one of them walked out. Just, you know, almost unbelievable that he was able to do it. There might have been two of them actually, I think, but they were able to walk out of their climb mountains. I mean, in retrospect, he says, there was no way we could have done that without divine help. I mean, it was just impossible what they did, given everything. But they did it. And I, actually, I saw, I both, I read it too, but I, they made a film of it. After coming through all that snow, there's a point, this is just excellent filmmaking, where they, the snow line ended. And, you know, the left foot is in snow and the right foot is suddenly on clear ground. And it was like they knew at that point they'd made it. And they were going to be able to rescue. Now that the end, of the, I mean, this is a, incredible story in itself. But they had, uh, several of them, including these leaders, had extraordinarily profound spiritual experiences. Um, And they talk about, you know, crawling out of the fuselage where they were huddled in the weather and seeing the dawn coming up over the snow and just in the most impossible circumstances, just being completely conscious of the presence of God. And various ones of them, one particular man who died in there, but just the more closer he got to death, the more joyful he became, and he was constantly encouraging them all. You know, it just, everything is taken away from you, and what's left is what you really have of your consciousness. And so this beautiful phrase, rules can be broken, and he's talking about discipline rules, but it's the also the the Vaisha expectation. I mean, that's, that's always the, 
um, an extremely important transition point in our spiritual life is when we shift from being Vaishyas in our spiritual life to being Kshatras. And let me just say that, explain that. The Vaishya is the second caste above the Shudras. And the Vaishya level is the merchant caste, is the idea of what that means. And the mer- it's, it's described as the merchant because you, you'll, you're willing to do the right thing because there's going to be a return. And it's just this thought that, of course, I'll behave properly because if I do, then this will be the return. And the merchant, is he's going to give you a good product for the right price. And he might even cut you a little bit of a deal, but there's got to be something back for me. And you can be creative and honorable, but still, it's always a, an exchange like this. And, the, and we tend to shift, you know, between Vaisha and Kshatri, and, and oftentimes people get onto the spiritual path, but in their minds, it's a Vaisha relationship. I'm going to now do all these things in the right way, and then as a result, this is what's going to happen. And that's the captain of that team. That was the big test he faced. He'd done everything right. So why, you know, God owed it to him in essence. He might not have put it in those terms, but in himself, that was the consciousness he was holding. And a kshatriya does, even will sacrifice his own life. The kshatriya is the soldier and the king. King meaning not power over others, but serving others, being everyone's answerable to everyone. Itself is nothing. I mean, the ideal ruler, we don't have kshatriyas as rulers now. We're lucky if we have vaishyas as rulers. We mostly have shudras who are really just in it for themselves. But what we have is mostly vaishyas. Well, mostly shudras. But anyway, um, kshatriya acts from principle because it's the right thing to do. And even if it costs me my life, it doesn't really matter. And that's why the soldier is the image. The soldier goes out you know, often young men, traditionally young men, in the prime of life, but for a cause greater than themselves, they literally lay down the, their lives. They discipline themselves, they sacrifice, and they're willing to die because they believe in what they're willing to die for. And this is right. So on the Kshatriya level, you just do it because it's right. You're not doing it as a Vaishya because there's a return. And even this, oh yeah, but the return is that I get to be happier. No, I'm just doing it because it's right. I can't not do it. We were talking earlier about the tamasic, rajasic people who lie for the creating havoc and how many of us just can't. You know, I just can't. Even when I tell, just sort of accidentally say something that's not quite true, it makes me so uncomfortable. I was raised in a family where that was just a prime value, but I think, you know, I suffered from that one. When, when one is so conscientious about something, it's not really because you're good, it's because you've been really bad and know the consequences of it. And therefore, at least for me, I just, I don't want those consequences. I always want to straighten it out. So the Kshatriya does what's right on principle. So as devotees, we have to ask ourselves, why am I on the path? And very often I'll, I'll realize when someone has come to me with, some kind of a conundrum they're trying to work out. It's really just that it's time to shift from being a Vaishya to a Kshatriya. Yes, you have done everything right, and isn't it interesting? God just keeps taking away what little you have. You know, and and we sort of shake our fist. I'm not going to be a devotee anymore if you don't give me what I want. Well, I mean, think of it if it was just a human relationship. You know, it's not like, it's not a real magnetic attitude. 
And also it just doesn't work because it's not the way it's set up. You know, God has given us everything and we simply have to see what is truth. We have to do our dharma. And that's that. Now, where Kriya really comes into it, which is what Master is saying, is that because of Kriya, we don't just have to believe. We can actually shift our own consciousness and, and can actually have experiences that, that, that make us naturally inclined toward higher realities. And you, you have to understand, the benefit of Kriya is not only, or not even primarily, that, oh, I had such a blissful meditation in the spiritual eye came and all these other things. A lot of us don't have that kind of experience. Some people do, but many of us don't. We, we do our Kriyas because it's very pleasant to do them, but it's not like in the experience of Kriya, suddenly, you know, things open up and we see the astral worlds. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But somehow the consistent practice of Kriya just changes our vibration so that things that were compatible and attractive to us just we don't match anymore. I mean, when I was on my bicycle outside that nightclub, I mean, there was literally a vibration coming through the street and all those people were in tune with it. You know, they were, they were magnetized to it and when they stepped into it, it would feel like them and they would really like it. But my vibration was so different that, you know, it was just jarring. And I, I didn't, thank you God, have to go in there. But I, it was just completely jarring to me. And that's what your Kriya does for you. Your Kriya, in addition to whatever experiences you may have, it simply transforms your vibration. And when your vibration transforms, then you respond in a completely different way to life. You, you, you feel the divine hand behind it. You see God's presence. You, you have this naturally uplifted energy and you're not drawn. You're just not drawn. It's not like you have to discipline yourself. It's, it simply doesn't interest you. And I don't just mean drinking or uh, whatever else you might have had in your past, but the inclination to blame others, to be angry, to be depressed, to be afraid. It doesn't go away, you know, instantaneously, but the longer and the more you do Kriya, you just, it's, it's, it's so subtle, and it's so natural, and it's so total, that you don't even see it coming. It's just that you gradually just realize that you've become somebody else. And it's not like one big weekend cathartic workshop, you know, where you swear that it's all gonna be different, often you really don't even think anything is happening because the kind of change that takes place here is more like a child grows. You know, your, your child just grows and you see pictures of him or her when they were smaller and they were so little and now they're, they're not anymore. And you, you, There wasn't a moment when he went from there to there. It's just, he just kind of slowly. And that's exactly how we work when, when we do our Kriya, well, that's how Kriya works on us. It just gradually shifts our vibration until you literally don't even recognize yourself. You're just so different than you used to be. You don't really, and you don't know how you got here except by the Kshatriya's dedication to just doing the right thing. And just like Master said about Gandhi, 
Gandhi was a man of his word. So I promised I would do these Kriyas, so I will do these Kriyas. And you're not a Vaishya. Well, I'm not sure it's working and I'm getting anything out of it. No, I promised I would do it, so I would do it. And even just the steadfastness of keeping our word also begins to shift our vibration. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a great blessing. You know, this path is comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. It's a whole package. It's a whole package path. <laughs> Hotel, car, airline, everything, all just on one. <laughs> and all these years later, I, I haven't found a gap in it yet. You know? That's why Swami would just say over and over again, I read the autobiography, I found Master. Everything else was details. Beautiful, wonderful details, but all just extra from that first relationship. So, that's tonight. How, how do we define shudra the same way? A shudra, I mean the, the traditional English word we call it is peasant. A shudra, let's see. A shudra is a person, let me, let me just think of the criteria. The way you define each of the castes is what, what they think gives happiness, um, what they do to avoid suffering, and what motivates them. A, a Vaishya is motivated by self-interest, a Kshatriya is motivated by principle, a Brahmin is motivated by wanting to do the will of God. A Shudra is motivated by the threat of punishment because a Shudra's sense of how to avoid suffering is to dull their consciousness by just sheer laziness or drinking or television or, you know, because a lot of modern people are Shudras. But the, the way they find happiness by putting out as little energy as possible and they try to get away from suffering by making their consciousness dull. The Vaishya is willing to put out energy as long as there's something in it for him. And the way he tries to avoid suffering is he tries to control the world around him. He tries to get enough money and get everybody in line and make them do what he wants them to do. That's why we have Vaishyas and Shudras as, as leaders of our country. Kshatriya recognizes that um, he tries to overcome suffering by transforming himself. So the Kshatri is the level where we realize that it's all just inside of me. And uh, his happiness comes from following Dharma. That's, and his motivation is principle. And then the Brahmin has no suffering or lack of suffering because it's all the will of God. Does that make sense? They're extremely, just extremely useful for people who work with children. And they're extremely useful for managers. <laughs> because you cannot motivate shudra with principle and a lot of times kshatriyas who believe in principle will try to motivate a vaisha or a shudra with principle you know you'll say if you keep selling manufacturing and selling DDT it's going to spoil the environment the vaisha says well if I don't do it somebody's going to do it you know it's like the principle doesn't mean anything it's, it's the profit motive and in our schools the biggest problem in our schools is our schools are set up for shudras and vaishas and any child who's not a Shudra or a Vaisha, the whole thing just goes past them. They're either going to be punished for not doing the right thing and they can never understand why they're being punished. It just seems crazy to them. Or they're told that they'll get more money. And they, it's not, none of it is on principle. And, but you have to look at the children and see who they are. I'll, I'll tell one more story on this. Uh, one of our families in the community, when the children were young, Swami was taking portraits, and he wanted to take a picture of the whole family. They were a very attractive family. The youngest child was a boy, 
and he did not want to have his picture taken, period. And he, he expressed it by crawling under the bed and refusing to come out. So the, he was about two, maybe, or two and a half, three, still young. And so the mother's down on the floor, and she's just mortified. And she's trying to persuade the child to come out on the basis that Swami is here. He wants to take the picture. You know, he's, he's the founder of the community. You ought to come out. All these principles. Swami bent down and said, if you come out, I'll give you Swiss chocolate. <laughs> and he darted out. <laughs> and the mother watched that. And then for many years, she paid him to do the right thing. And as long as she paid him, he would do the right thing. And then gradually, over time, she was able to persuade him that it was, just a, it was more pleasant to do the right thing, wasn't it? But she had to start him at the Vaishya level, because he wasn't a Shudra. He, even threat of punishment didn't move him. But if there was something in it for him, he would act. And Swami didn't, you know, he didn't have any scruples about it. He just could see who the kid was, and he offered him what he wanted, and then he cooperated. And then the kid got to discover that it was more fun to cooperate than to hide under the bed. <laughs> this is a whole, the whole culture of Shudras and Vaishas and so on, is, is we don't have that culture here in America, but it exists in India. And people being servants in the homes of wealthier, more educated people is a very positive direction because a Shudra gets to be in the company of those who are more advanced than they are, and then that influence begins to lift them. So it's not really an inappropriate system. And, it, and in, in America, we don't have this large population of shudras like they do in India, which is the only place I've experienced it. I'm sure that's in other places too. And, you know, people who just uh, are not motivated. And it's just, it's a wholly different reality, and everybody is somewhere and has to move forward. And uh, when we first went to India, meaning Ananda went to India, Swami basically warned all the Americans. He said, you know, you do not understand how to work with servants. He said, I grew up in countries where we had servants, and he, he warned us that there's appropriate behavior and there's inappropriate behavior. You can't treat a person with shudra consciousness as if they were kshatriya because they'll just take advantage of you and it won't help them. And that sounds mm, colonial, but it's also true from a spiritual point of view. It just depends on how you carry it out. Once again, here's the, here's the picture, and then here's the picture, and it's very, very different what you're working with. Okay, I think that will do it for tonight. Next class? Uh, yes, I'm leaving for... Uh, actually, the, well, there won't be any more classes. There won't be any more Tuesday night classes till next year, till January, because I'm gone for two months, and when I come back, it's Christmas. And we don't usually do classes during Christmas. I mean, it's Thanksgiving, but it's the beginning. So, but I'm coming back, and we'll start up again. And the people who are watching the film won't even notice. Okay? <laughs> and so we did... Well, just a moment. Let me, let me, just, let me put this on the film, and then we can. It's num I went from number 264 to two paragraphs into 268. Okay. <laughs>